But if you have a Bible and want to join me in the Gospel of Luke and the ninth chapter, we're studying through uh, the Gospel of Luke together. And uh, our text this morning will be Luke chapter 9, verse 46 and following. Luke 9, 46 and the next couple of uh, verses right after Right after that, we, we find ourselves here in Luke's gospel in a pretty interesting uh, situation. The disciples, um, ha- have you ever played that game with your children where uh, you've hidden something and they're going after it and you start to do the warmer, 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 getting there, getting there? Well, if I could use that illustration, here we find the disciples getting colder and colder and colder. Peter has declared that Jesus is the Christ. And yet what we're realizing is he didn't quite know what he was saying when he said that. His words were true, but his interpretation was off base. Many of the Jewish people believed when Messiah was going to come in those days, he was going to be a conquering military hero, sort of a a greater Alexander the Great. And Jesus, as we've studied together, he seemed well suited to that role. I I mean, one of the great burdens and uh, issues any military commander would face in that day if he's leading a conquering army was he's still at mercy to the weather i mean if you've if you've marshaled your forces and you're on the move and then all of a sudden this happened many times as you study history you're about to go to battle and a huge storm comes up or unexpected weather predicament arises you're at the mercy of the weather now what's jesus just demonstrated oh he can speak and the waves are stilled the rain cease the, the, the nature, he's not, he's not at the mercy of the weather, the weather's at mercy to him. And then what else has he demonstrated? Well, here's a woman with 12 years of bleeding and all she has to do is reach out and touch him and her bleeding stops. Would that sort of power be helpful on a battlefield? Oh, I think so. A sword wound, touch him, you're healed. And then worst case scenario, someone on the battlefield dies. What's Jesus demonstrated? He can speak, and the dead come back to life. And and then he's also demonstrated one of the other significant issues is how do you supply an army, particularly a large standing army, with food? Having many great armies in the history of the world have stopped their advance because they simply didn't have anything else to eat. And what's Jesus demonstrated? You give me a few loaves of bread and a few fish, I can feed the multitudes. And it's in that context that Peter says, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah. Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. The disciples and many of the other Jewish people think he's going to go to Jerusalem and drive the Romans out. However, what they didn't understand in that day, and by the way, we still have a hard time understanding today, is we've got greater issues than politics. We've got more significant enemies than Rome. There's sin, there's death, and there's the grave. And this Messiah, this Christ has come to conquer the most significant enemies and foes we face. However, because Peter and James and John and some of the other disciples still haven't got this clarified, and by the way, until Peter stands in that tomb and sees the grave clothes lying there, I don't think he's going to have it clarified. You'll remember when Jesus is, they've come to arrest Jesus, what does Peter do in the garden? He gets his sword out. Why? He says, man, it's time to fight. And I've got Alexander the Great here. And then the disillusionment that comes when the Christ, their conquering king, is put on a cross. The amazing truth of the gospel is the conquering king, the Christ, the prophesied of the Old Testament, is also the suffering servant who's prophesied in the Old Testament. And though they never put those two concepts together, Christ is both. And and so we see the disciples really wrestling with this. 
In fact, we'll read these scriptures together and you see that the disciples make mistake after mistake. Look at these verses. Luke chapter 9, verse 46 and following. These are the same three scenes we studied last week. We're just going to drill down a little bit deeper this week. It says there in verse 46, chapter 9, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So our first scene, we see a a scene of self-promotion. The disciples are arguing among each other about who's the greatest. And as we studied, uh, or we talked about last week, what possibly can they be arguing about? Which of them is the greatest at not casting out demons? Which of them was the first to pick up the 12 basketfuls of, of loaves and fish that are left over? I mean, exactly what are they arguing? The greatest at what? And, and then after a scene of self-promotion, we see a scene of petty jealousy. Look at verse 49. John, of all people, John. You wouldn't think this would be true of John, the beloved disciple. Verse 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Now, you'll remember just a few verses up, they had, been, they had encountered a situation where they were unable to cast out a demon. So that if the disciples had their way, no demons are going to be cast out because they can't and they're going to stop somebody else who can. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. Can you imagine disciples stopping demons being cast out? Here's why John says, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus Second scene and second time we've seen that phrase, right? But Jesus. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. So there's a scene of self-promotion. Then there's a scene of a petty jealousy and competition. And then the third scene, perhaps worst of all, is a scene of anger and intolerance. Verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. There's great hostility and animosity between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Now in Luke 9, the same chapter we're studying, Jesus has said, if you ever enter a village and there they do not receive you, what do you do? Shake the dust off your feet and then go on to the next village. That was what Jesus said to do. But look what the disciples, they have an, uh, uh, an amendment to his plan. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus, but he, third time we see that phrase, but he turned and rebuked them. Jesus said, shake the dust off your feet. They want to turn the people to dust. And they went on to another village. This week I was reading uh, lectures to my students by Charles Spurgeon. Uh, and he had a great example in it. He said that the famous artist Michelangelo always made his own tools. He didn't trust anybody else to make his, in particular, his paintbrushes for him. If he's going to paint the Sistine Chapel, for example, he said, I'm going to make my my own tools. He didn't trust anyone else to make his tools for him. And God is the very same. Any man or woman that God purposes to use, he forms and shapes them, him, the, the men and women himself. And the process can be quite painful. You left your windows up, right, in your car. At this point, anybody needs to make that adjustment now? You 
can, uh, can do that. Uh, the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus is not, a, is not a painless process. We see here the disciples, they don't seem qualified for ministry. And, and by the way, they're not. You can't qualify yourself for ministry. Jesus has to qualify you for it. And, and though there's mistake after mistake, Jesus, the good news is, is not, going, is not done with them just yet. The rain might get louder than me, and that'd be perfectly fine. It's happened before. And sometimes you just have to be still and, and let the Lord speak some. But, but we'll, we'll, we'll give it our best go here. There are three different scenes, a scene of self-promotion, a scene of petty jealousy, and then a scene of outright hostility. Three different scenes. However, there is, there is a common denominator in all of them. There's something in the hearts of the disciples when they're arguing about which of them is the greatest, and then something that's in their heart when they said, they don't follow with us, we're going to stop them from casting out demons, and then something that's in their hearts when they go to a village that rejects Jesus and they say, let's call down fire from heaven. It's the most dangerous substance in all the world. And it's the substance I want to talk to you about this morning. What is the substance that spills out of Peter and James and John and the other disciples on the road to Galilee? It's, it's the most dangerous substance in, in the world. This substance is doing more damage in more homes, in more places in the world than I think any other sin It's the substance that more than any other is holding revival back from this church and your life and this nation. It's the substance most responsible for prayerlessness in our lives and therefore powerlessness in our churches. It's not only a dangerous substance, it's a deceitful substance because it can rest in your heart and you be completely blind to its existence there. So we have to understand what this substance is is from these three scenes that we are studying here in Luke 9, look at the disastrous effects of, these, of this substance. Disciples arguing with one another instead of working and praying together. Disciples jealously criticizing the work of other followers of Jesus. And then disciples wanting fiery judgment to fall on an entire village in the name of Jesus. And it has the very same destructive effects today. Self-promotion, jealousy, competitiveness, anger, bitter, malice. These are all the symptoms. So what is the cause? What is it? Have you figured it out yet? Look, look what it leaves behind in its wake. Spiritual forces of wickedness go unchecked. The least of these are forgotten. The people of God are divided and hostility is present. Conversely, look at the things in these scenes that are not happening. Putting others first is out the window. Rejoicing in the kingdom of God going forth in power is forgotten. Broken relationships being restored is cast aside. Listening to Jesus, obeying him, and proclaiming him are not being done. And the primary reason the gospel is not proclaimed today, while we do not witness consistently, pray fervently, give generously, or serve sacrificially, is because of this issue. Have you figured it out yet? P-R-I-D-E. It's pride. It's pride in the hearts of the disciples. So I want to talk to you for a few moments this morning because these, these are real life issues, right? 
I mean, this is really going on in Jesus' day, and these issues are still present today. Now, we are looking at some symptoms. I want to look at the disease itself, because there is nothing, there is nothing more dangerous in the kingdom of God than the presence of pride among the people who claim that they follow Jesus. You've seen some of the things that are going on here, outright disobedience to God's word, uh, adding to what he has said, not obeying what he actually has told us to do. There's prayerlessness, there's powerlessness, there's a lot in common with the church in America today. And the issue is pride. Several years ago, uh, when I lived in Memphis, Tennessee, I worked at FedEx. Memphis, Tennessee is the uh, world headquarters of, of FedEx. And so I had a job working from 10 p.m. at night until about 4 or 5 in the morning uh, at the hub, this, uh, this huge airport where uh, airplane after airplane after airplane, all the things that you want sent to wherever it is you want them sent come into Memphis and you sort and you package and so on and so forth. And uh, one of my responsibilities was to get there a little bit early uh, to set up the, the water because it was hard work and, and you work all overnight. And so my responsibility was to go and uh, get these big jugs of water and bring to our uh, input line. And uh, my first night on the job, they had told me where to go. I had to walk by a place, and it was this huge facility, and there were signs all over the facility that said, keep out, danger, do not enter. And I'd walk by there, and there's just something about it, isn't it, when you're told to stay out, that you just kind of got to know what, what's in there, what's going on in there. And you kind of peek through, they had these big steel doors, and when a door would open, you kind of look in there. And one time I called a glance, and there were men and uh, women in there, and they were in these, uh, looked like uh, NASA suits, like astronauts. And finally, I went to my boss one night, when we were sitting down, I said, what, what is that facility over there? And he said, oh, that's the, that's the hazmat facility, the hazardous materials. So you, you can't go in there unless you've got the, the, the suit on and so on and so forth. He said, don't go, don't go near there. And I want to tell you, when we open up the Bible... The strongest warnings in Scripture have to do with this issue. Pride. There is nothing more destructive to your heart, to your marriage, to your home, to this church, to this nation, than pride. All over the Bible, we're going to see, we're going to open, particularly the book of Proverbs, you're going to see all these warnings about what pride does. Also, when I lived in Memphis, Tennessee, had the great privilege of being a member at Bellevue Baptist Church where Adrian Rogers was the pastor. And as I was studying the issue of pride in particular this week, I, I found some notes that I had taken from one of his sermons. So I just want you to know that some of these things that we're going to say, particularly because it's a very memorable outline, comes from him and not from me because he's a very gifted at being able to put things in a way. And I want you to know that it's not original with me, but, uh, but I'm passing it along to, to you. You know what we need to start with is a simple definition of what pride is. That be helpful. So let me give you two working definitions of, of pride. First of all is this. Pride is a sense or an attitude of independence from God. At the simplest, at the base level, that's what pride is. It's a sense and attitude of independence from God. There's a famous poem called Invictus. And in that poem, the author says, I am the captain of my fate, the master of my soul. Now, a lot of people love that poem. And I think heaven hates that poem. I am the captain of my soul? I don't think so. Or, or the, uh, the, the famous uh, singer Frank Sinatra, probably his most famous song is what? I did it my way. I'd sing it for you, but 
It'd be terrible. I did it my way. That's the hem of hell. Did it your way? Pride is a sense of attitude and independence from God. I don't need God. don't want God. He doesn't belong in my life. I want nothing to do with him. Another definition of pride that we use very frequently in our house, we learned it from Life Action Ministries. Our children learned it. They taught it to us, and we talk about it very frequently. Pride is doing what I want to do when I want to do it, putting myself before God and others. That's pretty easy to remember, isn't it? So, so oftentimes we'll have conflict in our house, and it's amazing. This is amazing, y'all. We have all sorts of conflict, but anytime we begin to have conflict, we come back to this definition. And you know what? Ten times out of ten, this is the source of the conflict. Somebody in the house wants to do what they want to do when they want to do it, putting themselves before God and others. Let's turn to the Old Testament book of Proverbs. There are two books that I think you should read every single day. Uh, You should read the Bible every day, but in particular, spend some time daily in Proverbs and in Psalms. Psalms teaches you how to worship. Proverbs teaches you how to live. And in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, is perhaps the most well-known verse about pride in all the Bible. In fact, many of you are going to know it before you even turn there. But but we're going to be looking at several Proverbs, so you want to go in and find the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Pride is doing what I want to do when I want to do it, putting myself before God and others. And look at what Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 says. Pride goes before, what does the Bible say? Destruction. This isn't a small matter. It doesn't say pride goes before you stub your toe or pride goes before a scrape. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Do you believe the Bible is true in what it says? The Bible says pride goes before destruction. So, so before we go much further, let's conduct a, a brief pride test to see if you won't wrestle with pride. And by the way, if you're a proud person, you're already saying, I'm not taking any test. Who are you to give me a test? You already thought that because of pride. So let me just ask a few questions. Pride shows itself in unthankfulness to God for all that he has done have a thankful spirit or a complaining spirit? Uh, secondly, if, if you want to do a, do, do a little check, do you get irritated when you are corrected for making mistakes at work or at home? Or somebody says, well, you, you could have done this better. Does it, does it, does it uh, sort of like fingernails on a chalkboard? You say, well, uh, who are you to tell me what to do? It's pride. By the way, who are we to tell God? Who are you to tell us what to do? It's pride. Do you like to accept praise over things which you have no control? Do you find it hard to admit when you make mistakes? Instead of admitting you make a mistake, you try to justify it? Like the Fonz on the old show, The Happy Days. Remember what he could not say? I was ru 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 He couldn't get the words out of his mouth that he was wrong. When someone does you wrong, do you decide that you're just going to do without them for the rest of your life? They offended you. So you're going to say bye-bye to them, and and that relationship is broken and severed. You're ungrateful and often complain. Do you willingly seek counsel from others? Do you measure success by victory over others? And then last question, are you discontent with what you have? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's pride that leads the disciples to argue over which of them is the greatest. Now, the greatest is among them when they're having that argument. 
But you'll see there's only one who doesn't participate in the argument, even though he really is the greatest. The great irony is the greatest among them is the most humble. He's going to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. You saw that in Luke 9. He said his space to go to Jerusalem to lay his life down and to serve others. So I'm going to give you uh, four brief statements about pride. We'll look at the scripture and you'll see how dangerous it is. And then, and then, by the way, we'll see a remedy for pride before we're done. First thing that I want to tell you is that pride defies God. Pride defies God. If you're in Proverbs, go to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16. Proverbs 6, 16. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. And just as the proverb uses strong language, destruction. Look, it says that these are the things the Lord hates. And these are things that are an abomination to him. And then the scripture is going to list out what those things are. And what's number one on the list? Haughty eyes. What haughty eyes are? Proud eyes. Arrogant eyes. A person who goes around in his life looking down on everybody else and, and, and thinking that he or she is what's really great. We sang it this morning. How great is he? How great is our God? How great thou art? Those are songs we sing and believe are true. God hates it. It's an abomination. Why does God hate pride so much? Because it defies him. Pride is what made the devil the devil. I will ascend above the most high God. What was the original temptation in the Garden of Eden? It was not, hey, take this apple and eat. What did the snake, what did that serpent, what did that liar, the father of lies who's been lying from the beginning say to Eve? If you eat of this, you will be, help me, like God. You'll be your own God. You'll be able to decide what's right and wrong. Now, by the way, is that just Old Testament centuries ago truth or is that right here right now do we still believe in this concept that i get to determine what's right and what's wrong i get to say what's good and what's evil i get to decide for myself and nobody else including god gets to tell me otherwise my friends those are the days we live in right now pride defies god you don't have to turn there but you can listen to first peter chapter 5 verse 5 this is peter writing much later than who we see in Luke chapter 9 when he's arguing about who is the greatest. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God, listen to this, opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Do you hear that? Pride makes you an enemy of God. Pride, the Bible says God opposes the proud. It doesn't say he ignores the proud or is indifferent to the proud. He opposes the proud. Pride makes you God's adversary. Pride says, I don't need God. I don't want God. I can be my own God. Pride defies God. And secondly, pride defiles man. Pride defies God and then it defiles us. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 5 says this. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be be assured, he will not go unpunished. Now, where does the Bible say that we're arrogant? Everyone who is arrogant in heart. You see that? It defiles us. What defiles us doesn't come from without. What defiles us comes from within. Jesus said this. Everything that defiles a man comes from within. 
That's why it's foolishness to think that, that, that we're going to make things better by changing external situations and circumstances and, and modifying something that's outside of us. Our biggest problem's not outside of us. Our biggest problem is right here. It's our own heart. You go back to Luke chapter 9, verse, uh, verse 46. An argument arose among them as to who was, was the greatest, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, said to them. In, in the original Greek language, that word argument and reasoning is the same word, and it's taking place in the heart. All of our arguing and reasoning comes from the heart. It's because of pride that we can sit week in and week out in the church unbowed, unbroken, unchanged. It's because of pride that we can come week after week and open up God's Word and see what the Bible says, but walk out the very same, making no changes to our life because, after all, we're okay. The Bible says, my friends, we're not okay (laughs) apart from the grace of God. It's because of pride there is no desperation in us for God. ask you a simple question. When was the last time Honestly, you are on your face before God. The, the primary reason we don't cry out to God in prayer is because of pride. Why we don't make great change in our life is because we're afraid what everybody else will think. You know why you're so concerned with what other people think about you? It's because of pride. And wanting to be made much of. Pride defiles a man. Proverbs 21 and verse 4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart. The plowing of the wicked are sin. Now, perhaps in your translation in verse 4, it says the lamp of the wicked are sin. That's because the the original Hebrew language, there's a word there that can be used multiple ways. But I think that the best best use there is that the plowing of the wicked is sin. And what's the proverb getting at? The proverb says even the plowing of the wicked is sin to God. Why? Well, you just think about it in those days. A, uh, a farmer goes out and starts plowing his field, drops his seed in there, works hard, and then sits back and things really do begin to grow. And then that wicked farmer looks at that field and says, look at what I did. Excuse me? Now, we've been listening to the rainfall. Anybody in here this morning say, rainfall? No, no, we didn't say that. I- anybody this morning get up and say, hey, son, go on and rise? No, no we didn't say that. Anybody plant some tomatoes or whatever that you enjoy planting? Anybody say, hey, a little seed down there, would you germinate? No, you didn't do any of those things. Who did that? God did. Even the plowing of the wicked is sin. As he, as he works hard and, and, and thinks that the fruit that he eats is the result of his own sweat. Now, his sweat's part of it, but it's not all of it. In fact, it's not even the most important part of it. God did that. God's responsible for the sunlight. God brings the rain. The man who looks at his field and says, look what I've done, has just defied God and defiled himself. Pride defies God. Pride defiles man. And third, pride divides relationships. If you've got a broken relationship in your life right now, do you know what the root cause of it is? It's pride. Look at Proverbs chapter 13 in verse number 10. By insolence. Another Hebrew word for pride. By by insolence comes nothing but strife. But with those who take advice is wisdom. 
You know, we can have the silliest arguments about things, and then they continue until you kind of forgot what you were arguing about. Uh, This week, I had the silliest argument with my wife. You know what we argued about? This is silly. We, We were going to bed, and we had cut the fan on. And, and I said, the fan's on too high, a little too strong. I mean, it feels good now, but at 2 in the morning, I'm going to be cold. And she's much more hot-natured. And she said, no. So I said, well, I'll just, I'll just click it once. It's on the fastest rotation. I said, I'll click it once so it, it's on the medium rotation. And my wife said, if you click it once, that'll cut it off. I said, no, it doesn't. I said, no, it doesn't. If I click it once, it just reduces the rate. She, she said, no, the, the fan speed goes up from off to phase one, kind of just spinning to phase two, and then to phase three. I said, no, no, it goes down. It goes from phase three, which is really, to, to, no, she said, no, it doesn't. And, and, and hey, honestly, you know what started happening? I'm right about this, and I know I'm right. I know, I, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to click it. I'm going to click it, and she's going to see. And then we're going to go to the other room, and we're going to, every fan in this house works the way that I say that it works. And we went back and forth and back and forth. And isn't that silly? I'm right. Now, (laughs) I was right. But at what cost do I need to prove that I'm right? Do you know what I mean? What, What cost does you really have to prove to be right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, the Bible says a husband is to be a giving man. I'll tell you, a husband who walks in the house and walks in and says, all right, everybody around here needs to get with the program and serve me. There's nothing more unchristlike in all creation than that attitude. As Christ loves the church, have this mind in you, which is also, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You're not going to get it anywhere else. I'll tell you that right now. You'll never get humility somewhere else. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though being in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself a man of no reputation and took on the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the pattern that every husband needs to enter the house. When you get home, husbands, dads, enter your house with this mentality. I'm going to have this mind in me, which is mine in Christ Jesus. I'm going in here to serve, not to be served. I'm going in here to give, not to, not to take. I'm going to go in and lay my life down. That is the responsibility and the privilege, by the way, of a husband. Not to find yourself having these petty, silly, shallow arguments about who's right about clicking, <laughs> clicking the fan. Shouldn't have even had the argument to begin with because if she wants to fan on high, I'll just get another blanket. (laughs) Pride divides relationships. There are arguments in your home. And listen, maybe they're about things that go much deeper than how fast does the fan go. It's because of pride. Go go, go with me here. I want you to see something. To to Luke chapter 9, our our, uh, text we've been studying through. Luke, Luke chapter 9, verse 51. 
Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, these are the sons of thunder, remember? The sons of thunder saw it. They said, Lord, do you want us to call fire to come down from heaven and consume them? How many of you have ever heard a criticism of maybe religion in general and even, even Christianity is uh, they just want to do violence in the name of God. You've heard that criticism? Whenever I'm sharing with somebody, I hear this criticism. Here's the text that I bring them to. Because you know what? When somebody says, there's been so many terrible things done in the name of religion, you know what I say to them? You are 100% absolutely correct. That is true. And then I bring them to this text. And you know what? That's what the disciples wanted to do. Their pride was such that they thought they're going to destroy people in the name of Jesus. I mean, look at how destructive pride is. They, on one hand, can't cast out demons because they're so powerless and prayerless. And then on the other hand, they actually want to destroy people, fire to fall down from heaven in the name of Jesus. And I say, you're absolutely right. But look at what Jesus does in verse 55. But he turned in, rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Now, you know Luke wrote another book. It's called the book of Acts. And I want you to turn to chapter 8 of Acts. Because Jesus knew something in that day that these disciples didn't know. And by the way, that's called humility to believe and trust that Jesus knows better than we do. And our impulsive plans are sometimes not the best plans. And we have to entrust one who sees the beginning from the, the end from the beginning. And not just sees the end from the beginning, but is the end from the beginning. He is the Alpha and Omega. Look at chapter, uh, Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to a city of Samaria. You remember Luke 9? They had gone to a village of Samaria, and they wanted to burn it down to the ground. And Philip goes there and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Now notice what had been in Samaria. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying out with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed So there was much joy in that city, the same kind of city James and John wanted to burn to the ground. What had happened? Now, there was a day they didn't receive, but another day came, and what happens? They did receive. They did believe. What was going on? Unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed. That village that James and John wanted burned down to the ground was overcome with spiritual forces of wickedness. And you see what the grace of God does? Grace of God says, let's let Philip go. Let's, go. let's let Philip go down there, and he's going to proclaim. You see, very often, people who we feel angry towards or animosity towards are the people who perhaps by the grace of God will one day be reconciled to God through Christ. And that's how you need to think about people who argue with you or don't receive you or slam the door in your face or say, you're such a foolish, Bible-thumping bigot, get out of here. Yeah, you can respond like James and John, hey, why don't some fire fall down? from?" Or you can say, oh, by the grace of God, may there come a time where there's much joy in this house, in this place, among these people, because the spiritual forces of wickedness have been driven out. Pride divides people. And then fourthly, and The last thing we'll say on pride. Pride defies God. It defiles men. It divides relationships. 
By the way, if you'll recall what Jesus said, if the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, if you're giving your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, what does he say? Leave your gift at the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and give your gift. I'll just say this. We're about to have an invitation in just a few moments. If you've got a relationship that's severed because of pride, your invitation is actually to leave from here to be obedient to the scripture, to go first be reconciled to your brother or your sister or your spouse or your daughter or your son or your brother or your sister or your coworker or your neighbor. Go be reconciled to them first and then come and give your gift at the, at the altar because pride divides relationships. And now I quoted that verse and immediately many of you, I know, I know, had somebody come to your mind. This is a relationship that needs to be repaired. And then immediately something else happened. No, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to. You know what that thing is? It's pride. See, I'm going to let them come to me first. Aren't you thankful that Jesus didn't have that attitude? I'm going to let them come to me first. This is love. Not that we loved him. He loved us. I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. Who broke the relationship? Not him. We did, but he's the one who came. Pride destroys souls. We already looked at the text in Isaiah, excuse me, uh, Philippians chapter 2, so let me do a contrast in Isaiah chapter 14. That's last, uh, I believe this is the last, let me check before I, no, it's next to the last verse that was, y'all all right? These are the important things we're talking about. So Isaiah chapter 14. What I want to do is contrast the description that we have of Jesus in Philippians 2 with a prophetic account we have of Lucifer, Satan, the father of lies in Isaiah chapter 14. Just recall real, real quick from Philippians 2, here's the pattern of Jesus. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though being in the very form of God, what does that mean? Jesus is God. Even though he is God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he made himself, he became a servant, made himself of no reputation. In other words, he humbled himself. He went from the throne of heaven to, to, uh, to being born in a manger in Bethlehem. That's humility. And not only that, he became obedient to death, and not just any old death, death on a cross. Therefore, what happened? God has highly exalted him. Now, I want you to contrast that with what the Bible says of Satan in Isaiah 14. Verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said where? In your heart. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I, notice how many times that word pops up. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I'll exalt myself. So what happens? But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? I will exalt myself. And then I'm cast down. Pride goes before what? Destruction. Now, Think over, we've been studying this text together, think over Luke 9. If the disciples in their pride had had their way, what would have happened? The hungry crowd of 5,000 people, remember what they said? Send them away. Let them fend for themselves. Let them go find food and shelter somewhere else. That's what they wanted to do. That was their plan. 
If Peter had his way, Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration would have had the same tent on par with Jesus. That's man-made religion based in pride. The disciples would have kept arguing over who's the greatest because of pride. They would have shut down the ministry of a man casting out demons and proclaiming the kingdom of Jesus because he wasn't one of us. They would have destroyed a Samaritan village in the name of Jesus with fire called down from heaven. And in all this scene, there's only one brief good moment for them, and that was when Peter declared Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus himself even said, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father on high has revealed this to you. So even that revelation from God was not because Peter was so great, but because God was so good. They are, for all intents and purposes, completely unqualified for ministry. It's amazing. These are the men who shook the earth in the name of Jesus. Because what happened? We're in Luke 9. And here are a few things that are yet to come. Luke 23, the crucifixion of Jesus. Luke 24, the resurrection of Jesus. And Acts 1, the coming of the Holy Spirit. It will take all three of those things to rid them of pride. And by the way, the very same three things have to be believed and received in your life to rid your heart of pride. The greatest demonstration of humility that there's ever been is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Pride goes before destruction. Humility comes before restoration. Again, do you have a relationship broken by pride? The first relationship that must be restored is our relationship with God. And again, Jesus takes the initiative. You know what separates us is our sin and our pride. They go together. (laughs) The strange thing is that the more sinful we become, the more proud we become. You know what the first thing that God requires of a man or a woman to be restored is humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. To admit I have a need. Now, we're going to conclude. But I just want to ask a simple question. It's one of those questions that preachers often ask. But I want you to seriously think about it. That there's going to come a day when you are going to stand before God. You are going to give an account of yourself. The Bible says there's a point for a man once to die and then the judgment. That day is coming. The only thing separating you for that is that little, you feel it, that little itty-bitty heartbeat in there. That's it. And then you're going to stand before him. Can I give you my testimony? My testimony is when I stand before him, I have, <laughs> I have nothing to boast in. All I've got is sin, pride, disobedience. You know what I'm going to say on that day of judgment? I trusted your word. It's by grace I have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not by any things that I have done. I have nothing to boast in. A proud person will say, I got something to boast in. I got something. I'm going to stand before God and say, look what I did. And then it's actually in the presence of God that we'll see ourselves for who we really are unless he gives us grace to see it now before that day really does come. Every knee is going to bow. You heard what the scripture says. In heaven, on earth, under the earth. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Oh, God, give us grace to be humble and, and see two things. The cross was first necessary. Jesus had to die for you to be restored. It's necessary and it's sufficient. It's enough. It's, it's necessary and it's sufficient. I'm going to invite you to stand and, uh, and we're going to have our time of invitation. Now, our time of invitation has, uh, has multiple purposes. The primary purpose, if we boil it down, is the invitation is a time for you to respond to what you see here in the word that we've proclaimed. So it might be a few different things. We give a public invitation for salvation, for example. Maybe you're realizing, uh, I've never humbled myself before the Lord Jesus Christ and accepted what he's done on my behalf, that he died for my sin. He took, he took my place. I've been arguing my whole life about who's the greatest. I'm the greatest, and I'm realizing, no, 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 it's not. He's the greatest, and the greatest gave his life. He was crucified on the cross for my sin. Have you ever believed that? Really, truly believed? Not just heard it, but believed it. The invitation is wide open for you to respond. You know the number one pre- reason people don't respond? Pride. What's everybody going to think? What's everybody going to think of me? You get, to, <laughs> you get to reject pride. Pride goes before destruction. Secondly, perhaps you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know you've been reconciled. But pride, just like it is in Peter's life, in James' life, in John's life, continues to be an issue. And the Lord puts his, by his grace, by his word, by his spirit, puts a sensitive, uh, his hand on a sensitive area, a relationship, a word that you said, something that you've done or something that's been done to you, and there's a fractured relationship. And maybe by God's grace you'd see the primary cause of that is actually your own pride. And you're invited to stand here to pray with anybody or if you want to kneel here. You don't, have to, you don't have to physically respond to the invitation to do business with God, but sometimes it helps to put some emotion behind, behind some things that are going on in your heart. And, and, then, and then finally, you may uh, say, I need, I need to be a part of a church home. I need to be a member somewhere. Same issue sometimes at stake. It's... it's humility that we join ourselves together because we need each other. That's what the body of Christ is. Right? We're not going to argue together who's the greatest. We've, we've, had, we, we've decided Jesus is the greatest. So now in humility, we want to serve him and love him and pray and proclaim the gospel together. So we'll pray together. And then as the Holy Spirit leads in humility, would you, by the grace of God, tell pride <laughs> to just sit down and be quiet and for you to respond to what the word of God says? Father, we've opened up your word and we've examined the scripture. And more importantly, by your grace, we pray that your word examines us. There is nothing more dangerous in the hearts of men and women than pride. It's pride that made the devil the devil. It's pride that defies God and pride that defiles man. Pride that divides relationships. And it's pride that can even destroy souls. So, during this time of invitation, by your grace, Father, we pray. There's relationships that need to be restored, that we'd, we'd, we'd actually act on promptings of you from your word. And not let pride rise up in us and continue to have sway in our lives. That our arguments, our petty jealousies, and even our outright hostility would cease if they're done so in a proud and sinful spirit. Instead of dividing would come restoration. Instead of defilement would come purification. Instead of defying God would come submitting to you. Instead of pride, there would be a spirit of humility and holiness among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.